welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me is John McCormack. John is a consultant paediatric anaesthetist at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Edinburgh, the Sick Kids. He's clinical lead for paediatric trauma in the southeast of Scotland Trauma Network, is a member of the Scottish Trauma Network Paediatric Group and the Mass Casualty Major Incident Planning Group, and does a little bit of adult retrieval to fill his spare time with the EMRS and Scott Star based in Glasgow. Welcome, John. Many thanks for joining us. Many thanks for the invitation, Dave. So, I personally find kids absolutely terrifying and broken kids even more so. I guess we should probably start with a little bit of physiology and look at why it is that kids arrest and a little bit of kind of physiology for folks. Okay, I think you're not alone in being scared of children. I suppose right to set out at the start is that to give some reassurance that cardiac arrest in children is very rare and to put a silver lining on a grey cloud if you are faced with managing a cardiac arrest that usual, if you like, straightforward ALS manoeuvres will often result in resolution of the cardiac arrest, and that's due to the underlying pathophysiology of why children have arrests. Maybe expand on a little bit of that, if you're happy for me to. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing to say is that unlike in adults, most cardiac arrests in children are secondary, and they're secondary to respiratory failure or respiratory arrest, and that essentially probably 80-90% of children that we see in cardiac arrest are because they have had a hypoxic event, a hypoxic arrest, and the cardiac arrest is secondary to that. Now, whilst that is still a pretty scary place to be, what we know is that responders, be it for basics, ambulance service, in hospital, out of hospital, that we've actually probably got a pretty good algorithm and pretty good equipment for dealing with an acute respiratory problem, be that a bag and mask, an oxygen, an airway adjunct, even right up to intubation. And if we can reverse that respiratory insult and that hypoxia in children who are either peri-arrest or recently arrested, we've actually got a pretty reasonable chance of getting the heart started again. So I think that's the first silver lining on the grey cloud. If you like de novo cardiac arrests, are really much rarer and really would be categorized into children that have congenital anomalies. So in babies that have very significant physical, anatomical disturbances, or maybe in slightly older children that have electrical conduction type issues. But these are rare. And in 12 years as a consultant at SickKids, I've probably seen less than 10 of these type of cases. So but you're much more faced with the respiratory hypoxic problem, which we have a good mindset to deal with. So going right back to basics and just making sure that the air is going in and out is kind of key. Absolutely. And, and I suppose there is the, the mantra, air needs to go in and out and blood needs to go round and round. And if you can actually get the air going in and out effectively, the blood will go round and round. Well, that's reassuring. Now, I remember getting repeatedly scolded at medical school because it was great fun to wind up the paediatricians and say that kids are just small adults. In our line of work, can we kind of get away with that? Is there anything that we need to know about the sort of anatomical differences? So I do quite a lot of teaching about particularly paediatric trauma. And my opener is generally kids are small adults, particularly for the principles of trauma management. You can even turn it on your head and say that adults are just big kids when you're dealing with a lot of adults who have injured themselves. But yeah, 
that I think that's an absolute reasonable premise to follow. And it's vital that we do the basics well. And in an ABC mentality, all we're doing is scaling things down to an appropriate size. Yeah, we need some help with doing calculations for equipment sizes. We need some cognitive aids for doing some of our drug calculations. But the absolute principles and the headlines that we're following are the same. So I think it is really important to remember that just because we're faced with a four-year-old or a seven-year-old rather than a 70-year-old, we're still following the same path that we would for that adult in cardiac arrest. There are some differences, and this is where I add a little caveat to my own mantra of children are small adults. There are some differences in pathophysiology. I've touched on some of those already. And there are some differences in how children respond and compensate. But in terms of treatment, when you're faced with that, it's absolutely reasonable to follow what you would for an adult. And you mentioned cognitive aids there, and it's something that's cropped up again and again. My kind of go-to is the JR Calc that I know a lot of the paramedics use and various docs as well. Is there anything else that you're aware of that's a good kind of resource for dealing with kids? No, I think JR Calc's a great starting point, and I do recommend that to a lot. And it's actually very reassuring when, if I go out to a scene with the MRS and there's a child involved, I see people flicking through their GR calc books all the time, or even on the way out to a scene. Difficult if you're a solo responder and you're driving yourself, but having somebody in the vehicle or somebody that can just bounce some headline numbers off you, age, potential size, thinking about maybe tracheal tube size, thinking about LMA size or IGL size, thinking about adrenaline dose, just have some few headline points. And I think even in, in a job where I'm doing calculations on children, drug doses, equipment sizes every day, we still have cognitive aids all over our wall. We've got apps on our phones. As I said, the GR Calc, I think, is invaluable. So I would really encourage people not to try and learn small doses, small numbers, equipment sizes, but really just learn where to access that information. Make sure it's in a user-friendly format and you can navigate your way around it very quickly when you have to. And do you have any truck with the kind of Breslow tapes or the measuring type devices? So I don't use them. We don't use them even in our emergency department. I think we're probably a bit more crude. And sometimes I think maybe people that don't deal with children often are actually more accurate than us. And as an example, you know, you might see the use of a Breslow tape and it says, oh, this patient might be about 27 kilos and you do a drug calculation based on 27 kilos and it counts out at 397.5 milligrams you know in hospital in an emergency situation you're not doing that we're looking at the child they look at about 30 kilos we're going to round that drug dose to 400 milligrams or 450 milligrams in the emergency situation approximation is acceptable and i'm not belittling the importance of drug calculations but the kind of drugs we are using and the magnitude we may be out with two or three kilos either way is unimportant in that peri-arrest situation. Well, that's, yeah, that's really useful to know. So the next thing I wanted to touch on before we get into the nitty-gritty of the arrest algorithm is kind of just looking at the headlines of the peri-arrest kid, you know, these really, really sick kids who are mottled and look horrible. Aside from our basic A to E assessment, is there anything extra, anything that we need to think about with kids in addition to our standard adult approach? No, I think the standard adult approach is reasonable. I quite like the acronym CRASH. Basically, when you're looking at a sick child, thinking, is my patient about to crash? What colour are they? And I think, obviously, we have the normal sort of pink, happy, whatever child. And then I think they can go a bit mottled, maybe if they've got poor perfusion. But actually, that pallor, that sort of central pallor is very concerning to me. 
crash, see our respiratory, what is the respiratory rate? And we know that children will compensate for any pathology with the increase in respiratory rate. And especially in smaller children and babies, the respiratory muscles don't have an infinite capacity to compensate and they will just fail. So if you're plotting a trend, if you've got the respiratory rate 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, that child is basically running a marathon with their intercostal muscles and their diaphragm and they will fail. So that next respiratory rate, 20 minutes later of 40, might not actually mean they're getting better and going back down the curve. They're tipping back, they're tipping over and it goes to zero. So respiratory rate, really important. And in babies as well, apneas is a part of that. Babies, for no good reason, will just stop breathing when they're working hard. They'll start again, but apneas is a very early indicator of significant respiratory pathology. Color respiratory alert state, obviously, again, that fits with ATE in adults. What is their state? That drowsy child, I'm so alarmed. A screaming child, I'm not too stressed about, yeah, well, it hurts my eardrums and it puts everyone's sort of tensions up. But a screaming child has probably got a good airway and good oxygen sat. That child that's sitting there whimpering in the corner, that child that you can put an IV cannula in and doesn't flinch, that's an absolute red flag to me. Okay, fantastic. So we've got colour, respiratory rate, and the alert state of the kid. So we're, I guess, S next. Yeah, so S, S is signs of sepsis. And that's you're really looking for temperature, both high and low temperature, really important. So that child that's freezing cold or roasting hot. And other things... Obviously thinking about signs of meningism, so the stiff neck, the bulging fontanelle, and any obvious rash. And I think only in that a number of patients with severe meningococcal sepsis may progress to that peri-arrest state. So identifying that, whilst we still have to do our ABCD interventions to manage the peri-arrest state, that really influences our subsequent management beyond that. And then H is for hydration state. I'm looking at the capillary membranes, looking at skin turgor, and um, just feeling how cold they are at the edges. And that's obviously a very important thing to guide our resuscitation because if this is a very acute precipitant, it may be that the child is not significantly dehydrated. So we don't want to go piling in with a whole load of fluids. For instance, if it's a cardiac event, in that rare case where somebody does have a cardiac event, we probably don't want to go and give large boluses of fluid. Whereas if this is severe sepsis in a peri-arrest state, then fluids are going to be absolutely a, a mandatory part of that resuscitation. So as I say, that on top of our ATE assessment, I like to plug in that crash algorithm specifically for kids and specifically trying to pick up things like sepsis. That's really useful and reassuring to hear you kind of temper the message on fluids because I'm always a little bit nervous that you know, my fluids are sat out in my car and are generally just above freezing level. And I'm always slightly reticent to think about giving large volumes of fluid to kids in the pre-hospital environment. Yeah, I think that it's encouraging to hear that you're tempered about it. I think the sepsis picture is a very clear one. Basically, we will not be able to resuscitate a child with severe septic collapse without reasonable boluses of fluids. And I do follow the sort of 20, 40, 60 algorithm. I'll give 20 per kilo fluid and then wait 15, 20 minutes, another 20 per kilo fluid. And it's that kind of time frame. So after an hour, we've given about 60 per kilo of fluid. Now, in possibly in hospital settings, at that stage is where I'm thinking about inotropes if a child hasn't responded to that 60 per kilo of fluid. And really, I would probably be cautious about giving more fluid than that pre-hospital, even if there's long transfer times. Just in that, that phase, if we just keep piling in clear fluid in somebody that does have quite a sort of leaky capillary system without some vasoactive agents, 
then worried about precipitating some pulmonary edema and then actually worsening the hypoxia, which may be contributing to the overall perianist scenario. Counter to that, I think, is trauma, is the, the classic example. If we're really in trauma now, if somebody's bleeding, we'll give blood. If somebody's not bleeding in trauma, then generally we'll not give any fluids. Certainly we're not wanting to give cold fluids and we're not wanting to give acidic fluids like saline. So really in a traumatically injured child who is not actively having a significant ongoing hemorrhage, then I probably won't give any fluids at all. What I want to do is manage their immediate ABCD needs, get them to a centre where we can get some imaging, find a definitive bleeding point and treat that bleeding point. Obviously factoring in things like hemostasis, tranexamic acid, splints if necessary. So I think you're right. I think if this is a sepsis thing, we go with fluids. If it's not a sepsis thing, just urge on the side of caution, but don't withhold fluids if you think a child really needs it. And I guess that sort of first hour mentality also buys us through the first kind of the chaotic stage to hopefully a point where we can start to phone a friend and lean in and get some advice from you and your colleagues about where we should be heading and what we should be thinking about. Absolutely. And I think the message we have to share is that you're not going to be on your own dealing with this. I'm not on my own dealing with a problem like this in the hospital. If the patient comes in through the resus door, we'll have colleagues from all specialities there supporting them. If it's a sort of a trauma team or a retrieval team tasking, again, there'll be a bigger team. So we don't want you dealing with this on your own. And it comes a little bit back to the cognitive aids in terms of you might not know all the answers, but know where to find it. So you might not know exactly the specific person you have to call but know the pathway for support you can access, be it through basics or through the ambulance service, or if you've got arrangements with your local hospital. We need to just know that pathway. You don't need to know the person, know the pathway, know who we can access. And obviously, from a Star point of view, there's a paediatric retrieval team. Again, the trauma team, whilst a nomenclature, if you like, of trauma team, it's really a pre-hospital medical support team. So if you find yourself dealing with a sick baby in Aberfeldy or Killen or Kinloch Rannock or somewhere that's really quite rural and actually any transport to a paediatric centre is going to be ours, then think about accessing those other medical resources that might be able to provide either remote or, or on-scene support for you. And I think having, I certainly have a trauma desk on speed dial because I can offload that to them and just give them a contact number and they can give me a ring back, which <laughs> it means I don't have to yeah, think about exactly who I need to call. Exactly that. Having your port, your, your, if it's just one number you have, and even if you know that number might not be the person who can give you the advice, but they will find someone who can give you the advice and, and call back and get in touch with you that way. I think it's really important. Okay, so I'm dealing with my sick kid in the back end of Kinloch Rannoch. It's a foggy day, there's no aircraft flying. Looking at a couple of hours transfer back to Dundee. And as I'm sort of going into that reassessment cycle, I notice that my kid has now stopped breathing. Aside from a, a rapid tightening of sphincters, what's my first action on? Because my brain goes to adult ALS rather than to paediatric ALS. So what do I need to do differently? I suppose I would challenge you that you don't need to do anything differently. And I think it is that very much stepwise approach to ramping up your interventions and your adjuncts that you need. And I think it's important, just as I touched on just earlier, that particularly if this is a small, say maybe less than a one-year-old, if it's an infant or, or a newborn baby, that apneas are a common feature of respiratory stress. And whilst they may be chugging along very tachyneic, then they'll just stop, but then they will start again. And minimal stimulation can help with that. Just, you know, a tickle on the tummy, something like that, 
maybe just starting to do a tiny little chin lift jaw thrust, that's enough to get them going again. And we see that routinely under children, small babies that have anesthesia for elective procedures, potentially in recovery, they'll just have this pause and just a little finger under the chin and they'll start again. So that's very uh, an infant type pathology. If this is a bigger child and they've got significant, they're in a peri-arrest state and you've been watching the respiratory rate and it is that, if you like, tipping over the top of the curve, they've got faster, 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 drop to zero then we're going to have to start with their interventions and really just work through the same algorithm you would with an adult. So you're probably going to start off with, I guess, a bag valve mask would be the first port of call. And this is maybe where I'm saying do the same thing, just do it slightly differently. That probably applies for managing all pediatric sort of sick patients. So the same thing is you're going to size up your mask appropriately. You're going to put the head and neck in an appropriate position. And obviously, remembering we don't want to press under the chin too much. So it's that much more around the mandible. We're doing a little chin lift. We're doing a jaw thrust. We're applying some positive pressure through the bag. And again, we match, try and think about what would this child's normal respiratory rate be. So we don't just go in with 10 by 500 big breaths, small, shallow breaths at less pressure are more likely to match that child's own intrinsic rate. And that might actually trigger them to start again. So just think about matching what we're delivering to what that child actually needs. Think about limiting the total pressure if you are doing bag valve mask. What we don't want to do is overinflate the stomach. And I think this is a really important point. This is one of my sort of top five take homes. And that if you've got a child that you're manually ventilating for whatever reason, with whatever device, you will blow air into their stomach. It's absolutely impossible not to. And what that will do is it'll raise their diaphragms, it'll reduce their FRC, it's going to make them more difficult to ventilate and it's going to make them more hypoxic. So really just watching for that. And where you see the tummy starting to blow up, thinking about doing some gastric decompression. Now, I know certainly in the ambulance service, I know we don't carry NG tubes. You can use a fine suction catheter. If you do have an NG tube, then deflate the tummy. If you've got a long transfer time, you might need to do this every five, 10 minutes, deflate the stomach. Hopefully you're not going to have to bag a child for two hours, but it's so important. You can have somebody that's completely unventilatable, drop the NG down, deflate their stomach, pull it out, and off you go. And they're really compliant again. It could even be an adult gastric tube. Put it down orally, let the gas out their belly, and even if you just pull it out again, because the problem with having the NG down there is that you don't get a great seal with the face mask. So I think that's a really important thing. If I was to reinvent myself as a commercial product developer, I would send out NG tubes in the bags with bag valve masks because I think they should go hand in hand, they're absolutely integral. Working up then, so you start bagging, maybe not getting great chest inflation. The next stage we would think about would be to use a nasopharyngeal tube. And what we would use is a normal tracheal tube that we all carry in our bags, size it up from the corner of the nose to the angle of the mandible, cut it and push the hub back in and just slip that down the nose. We obviously don't need any of the safety pins or anything. Advantages of that is that it often gives very good sort of airway patency. A lot of the children that are maybe in the two, three, four, five, very snuffly big adenoid stage, you can bypass that if that's contributory to airway obstruction. And also it allows suctioning, really good sort of posterior pharyngeal suctioning. And a lot of children's secretions can completely obstruct the airway. So if you can, again, drop a fine suction catheter down through that nasopharyngeal airway, you'll actually get really good clearance from the back of the oropharynx. Working up then, as you would next in an adult, go to an oropharyngeal airway. Again, sizing is very important. Corner of the mouth to the angle of the jaw. 
all the different colours. And this, again, comes back to a comment about referring to GR Calc and appropriate guidelines. I have no idea. I've been using them for nearly 20 years. I don't know if a double zero fits a six-month-old or a triple zero fits a three-month-old. You look at the size of the child, you grab two or three in your hand, you size them up and you pick the appropriate one. And don't get bogged down in the small print of specific sizing and specific numbers. Eyeball the child, eyeball your kit, size them up and go for it. And if you need to change it, you change it. I think it's important just to sort of apply a practical slant to all the guidance that's out there. So you've got your child, you're applying bag valve mask ventilation, you're doing gastric decompression, you've maybe put a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal airway in. And then it's come back to you, Dave, and say, how's the child responding to that? So I think for the purposes of this, we're not really getting anywhere. And I guess from an ambulance point of view, that the last kind of bit of kit that I've got lying around is going to be an eye gel. What are your thoughts with paediatric eye gels? Yeah, I think I have absolutely no problem at all about progressing up to that. I think the only caveat would be that your child's probably going to have to be fairly unconscious to tolerate the eye gel. And I suppose at any stage, and what you hope is going to happen is that your interventions are going to be effective. You're going to reverse the hypoxia, you're going to reverse the peri-arrest state, and the child's going to start perking up and start protesting and spit out your oropharyngeal airway, pull out the nasopharyngeal and cough and splutter against the bag valve mask, at which point you can just go back onto a normal trauma mask. I think if we're working down to IGL insertion, then we're probably dealing with a fairly well past the peri-arrest situation. Again, it comes down to making sure you know your sizing, knowing where your reference for that is. But again, don't be afraid to look at the child. If you've got, a, say, a 10-year-old and your GR cult says, well, a 10-year-old, you should maybe have a two and a half size eye gel in. And you look at the child and think, they're the same size as me here. Then don't be afraid to upsize to a three or similarly, if they're very small and thin to downsize to a two, take it as a reference, but use that in interaction with what you see in front of you. I think the ideas are really good in bigger children and, and adults, obviously, as they would be first line now. I think the small eye gels are not a panacea for everything. I think just be quite wary if you're using the size one or size one and a half eye gels can be quite difficult. I think just that the infant anatomy isn't maybe as consistent as in bigger children and adults. But don't be afraid to try it. I think that's the important thing. And obviously, the big advantage of the IGL is it has that gastric port. So even if we've not got an absolutely perfect seal around the larynx, we're hopefully not going to blow up the stomach and not run into that problem with the FRC reduction and diaphragmatic excursion. So yeah, no problem at all with IGLs. Excellent. Now, I want to kind of touch on the fully arrested child. And again, looking at paediatric specific stuff, is there anything in addition to that ALS algorithm that's drilled into us that needs to be bouncing up to the top of the brain cell? Only on that, it's, it's maybe repetition, but I think it's worth reinforcing. The likely reason for a child being in cardiac arrest is a primary respiratory problem. So be absolutely meticulous and pedantic about making sure we're addressing the airway issues as well as we can. We should be meticulous and pedantic all the time about that. Obviously, in adult cardiac arrest, there's much more of a drive on getting on early with the CPR, getting on early with the defibrillator. Yes, all of these things are important, but make sure we're dealing with the airway issues first, because in 80-90%, that may be the primary pathology, and that may allow us to reverse it. So if I'm presented with a child that's in cardiac arrest, I want to make sure I'm having a look at the airway first, making sure the airway's open, get a few rescue breaths in before just going straight in with CPR and putting the defibrillator on. So, And I think that is echoed in the ELS guidance, is it does really sort of say, do some breaths, then do some CPR 
before thinking about getting monitoring and defib and such like on. That's brilliant. Keeping things right down to basics is good for my brain, which struggles to cope with the kind of the workload at times. I guess whilst we're dealing with this, we probably ought to just touch on choking. Now, again, as a as a responder, by the time I get to a choking kid, they're going to be pretty well established. And if they've got good going, choking are unlikely to be still doing a huge amount for themselves. What are your thoughts in terms of the choking algorithm? Anything that you find works? Any kind of top tips around choking? If a child comes into the resus room in cardiac arrest because of choking, what I'm going to do is probably laryngoscopy and try and see if I can see anything. But that really is the end stage. So I think moving away from that and going through the standard algorithm would be a more appropriate, and certainly in, in rural locations, and just work through the back blows and the thrusts, conscious child, or onto full CPR in the unconscious child. Having gone from some fairly miserable topics to a possibly even more miserable one, I want to pick your brains about decision-making with these massively sick kids. Do you have any thoughts about when we just scoop and run, when we try and stabilise things in situ? What kids should we do what with? Yeah, thanks for that. (laughs) So again, we're never going to be able to write an SOP or a guideline or a script that encompasses all situations. And I think particularly for other colleagues in basics in very rural locations, this is going to be a very difficult situation, obviously, to deal with. I suppose things I would think about are history, timeframes, and if we're possible to tease some of that information out. If this is somebody with a very rapid collapse and you're on scene rapidly, even in a very rural location, even if you're looking at an hour and a half's transfer time, you think if this patient has been well and say suddenly obstructs, has an arrest, you're on scene very quickly and you start delivering good quality APLS from that stage, then that's maybe a child where I think, well, yeah, okay, let's just get moving and do what we can on the move and potentially rendezvous with additional support if that can be coordinated. A child who's potentially been unwell for a long time or a child with complex comorbidities, he's had a severe chest infection, you don't actually know the time frames of the arrest. What I suppose I don't want to do is, do you stay or do you go, is the question. And what I don't want to be doing is moving children who have got no chance of survival, and that maybe sounds blunt and harsh, and you might counter me and say, well, surely we should give every single child the opportunity of survival. But I think it's quite clear where situations where survival is so unlikely. And by moving the child, what we're doing is we're putting that child through potentially unnecessary interventions. We are putting the crews through unnecessary risk. We're putting the parents through just a whole multitude of stresses. Obviously, their whole world has just been turned upside down. And then they may be dragged 60, 90, 100 miles or from an island to the mainland away from what's importantly their home support network, their social support network. So I think it's really important if you arrive at a situation, say a child's been found arrested in their bed in the morning, they've been unwell for several days, nobody knows the time of the arrest, do you want to be driving from Kinlochvarich to Nine Wells with that child? I think be wary of initiating that pathway, but it comes back to also the conversation we've had earlier. Don't make this decision on your own. Ask for help, call the trauma desk, call the Nine Wells ED, really call someone else, call someone else to share that decision-making load. And somebody who's abstract from the situation will hopefully be able to give a more objective perspective on it. And I've been that person who has both made the calls and received those calls 
and being able to say, actually, yeah, I think you should go on this when the team maybe haven't felt it. And similar to say, look, you're 90 minutes into ALS and you're 90 minutes out from hospital, this child has no chance of survival. Then leaving the child you know, and the family with their social support network, I think, is really important. Pathologies might factor in, and again, that comes back, I suppose, to history. If you've got that very sudden, so a drowning, a very sudden airway, a sudden respiratory event, where actually you might want to get moving sooner rather than later because if you can reverse that hypoxic, that respiratory pathology, you've actually then got a very good chance of, of outcome. A choking would be, again, if that you're doing CPR and that foreign body dislodges and you get a good airway, that child's got a good chance of survival. So these are the ones who certainly want to move on. But I think it's really important just so I don't feel you have to make that decision on your own. Please seek help from whoever that may be. And as I say, you mentioned the trauma desk. They can contact the paediatric trial team. They can contact the EMRS team. And hopefully someone will be able just to give you that second sort of a little bit more headspace by sharing that decision making. That's really useful. Is there anything in terms of prognostication? I know with adults that we're starting to use entitled CO2 a little bit more. Does that all relate to paediatric practice as well? Yeah, similar. I mean, I would be very encouraged about seeing a good capnography trace. And it's almost having seen children going through that ROSC phase, if you like, you know they're going to get their output back. You know you're going to start to be able to feel a pulse in a few minutes. And it usually is the CO2 starts to pick up and then they get that colour change. They go from that mottled through the pallor phase and just looking at the children, you can see that. So, and I don't think that's any different from adults. I would be certainly encouraged where you've got a good, be it with a tracheal tube or with an IGL, if you've got a good airway seal, and you're starting to see that increase in CO2 picking up with every breath. Remember, they're going to be very acidotic and very hypercarbic, so you are going to see a big rise in CO2 once you start getting perfusion. And also that may be useful in that peri-arrest state where you think, is this a no-flow or a low-flow? Again, to me, I use that same principle in adults. You go in and you actually can't feel a pulse. They look like they're arrested, but you've kind of got a reasonable CO2 phase that doesn't just fade off after the first few breaths. You think, well, actually, yeah, there is perfusion ongoing here. So we're going to go in, we're going to give some adrenaline or whatever, we're going to start moving to wherever we want to. So yes, I would definitely encourage that. I think maybe just touch on what we talked about before regarding decision-making in rural areas. In Edinburgh and Glasgow, I know there's not so many basic responders in these areas, but in those catchment areas, we have agreement from the emergency departments in both the Edinburgh Children's and Glasgow Children's Hospitals that even if you think the situation is not going to be survivable, that you can take the patient to hospital, so not on blue lights, not with ongoing CPR. And what those hospitals will do is they will manage the patient appropriately. They will initiate the appropriate bereavement care, social care, and such like for the parents. So if you're in catchment areas for these hospitals, it is worth that direct call to the emergency department. So that pathway is in place. I don't know if we'll be able to expand that out to the whole of Scotland, but just to let you know, it is out there in Edinburgh and Children's Hospital catchment areas. That's really useful. Thank you. I guess the last area I just want to touch on, we've been chatting to Richard Lyon about traumatic cardiac arrest. Now, I live just next to the A9. We frequently have tourist families going up and down the road and every so often it goes wrong. Is there anything that I need to think about beyond the sort of hot algorithm dealing with traumatic cardiac arrest in kids? No, <laughs> in essence, no. I think what is quite useful, and I can maybe share the link with you afterwards, is over the last sort of 
18 months to two years, there's been a fairly big group across the UK looking at developing a consensus statement for the management of traumatic cardiac arrests in children. And that's now been published in resuscitation. I think it was the end of last year. So I'd be happy to share the link for that. I suppose traumatic cardiac arrest in adults, we're much more thinking about penetrating trauma. And I'm guessing Richard probably talked quite a lot about penetrating trauma and management of chest decompression and such like. That is fortunately in Scotland quite rare in children and it's much more related to blunt traumatic cardiac arrest. And I think some of the pathological differences and responses to that are slightly different. So we have to think, again, focusing on airway, has this been a trauma that's actually affected the airway patency or breathing drive as opposed to a major sort of blood loss situation? And just as an example, asphyxiations, drownings, these kind of things, they would be categorised as traumatic cardiac arrests, but really they're sickened to respiratory arrest. And that's where, again, we go back to making sure we're really focusing on the small print of doing the basics really well when it comes to airway management and such like. And I think it's really important, again, to prognosticate in paediatric traumatic cardiac arrests. If we've no electrical activity, if we've no signs of life in terms of pupil movements, respiratory movements, if you have an ultrasound available and there's absolutely no cardiac movement, then progressing on down an algorithm that may include chest decompression or thoracotomy or transferring to a major trauma center for a code red response is not going to be of value in children. So I think we're pretty clear on the, the blunt traumatic arrest management. We're really looking for some signs of life. If it is a child with a penetrating traumatic cardiac arrest, then absolutely the same as adults and just follow the HOT algorithm. Now, you mentioned drowning there, and obviously drowning in kids is always a big worry for parents, and the numbers support the fact that it is a significant risk. There's a lot talked about cold water drowning and that sort of protective factor of cold water. What are your thoughts? So it's something I'm interested in, both the paediatric drowning element and both the, I suppose, the hypothermic arrest element of that. I've been you might say fortunate or unfortunate over the last few years to be involved with a few cases across Scotland of both. And actually having, I suppose, learned the hard way, having dealt with the cases, then having done a lot of reading about it, a lot of talking about it, a lot of information gathering, you can actually define this a fairly clear protocols of how to manage drowning. And I don't think this is specific to children, but sort of cardiac arrest and drowning, thinking about water temperature. I think what we do know is that the water temperature needs to be below six degrees to confer any hypothermic urological protection. And that's well evidenced from lots of avalanche studies. So I think in that respect, in Scotland, most of the year, most of the water is not below six degrees. So an immersion in a river in summer or a loch in summer or the sea, actually most of the year, maybe not around the east coast, but below six degrees is actually pretty cold. So if you're thinking about neural protection from immersion in cold water, I'm actually thinking about falling through ice into a very cold loch are the kind of patient where you may want to extend your resuscitation efforts. And in terms of extending resuscitation efforts, we're thinking about, again, very crudely, and, and again, I may be referring to links, Paddy Morgan, who's in the east to stand on the south coast, has done a lot of work on drowning, and he's got a great algorithm, it's like one page that refers to a 30, 60, 90 minute time window. So standard resuscitation from standard patient drowning and standard temperature of water in 30 minutes of resuscitation is appropriate to continue. But beyond that, you're unlikely to have a survivor. If there is a special circumstance, and by that the children go into the special circumstance box, 
or the water is particularly cold, so it's below six degrees, then they say 60 minutes of resuscitation is the appropriate time frame. And then if you're in the extra special circumstance, which would really be a child falling into ice cold water, then you can go up to 90 minutes of resuscitation. And really then when you start to put that time frame in, a child that falls into a wee lochin up in Jahalian in winter, I think actually, even if you pull them out and they're in full cardiac arrest, there is the scope for there being enough hypothermic neuroprotection that actually getting resources in there, all guns blazing, getting that child to an ECMO centre is possible within 90 minutes. And that's where you push that big red button. These are the type of patients. So just think about the age of the patient and the water temperature. But again, I'll find the links to Paddy's chart on that because it is really useful. That's brilliant. Thanks very much. Grant, to wrap things up, we've been asking all of our presenters to give us three top tips for basics responders just to help them deal with these peri-arrest, arrest, and I guess kind of special circumstance type kids. What are your thoughts? So I think the three top tips would be cognitive aids. Don't try and do any of this, keeping all this information in your own brain. Your bandwidth is going to be overloaded by the scene that presents you, the clinical interventions you have to deliver, and the emotional burden of having a parent, a granny, an auntie, an uncle, a group of friends nearby who have just witnessed what is possibly the worst event of their life, and you're plonked in the middle of this stage to fix it. So really, be it GR Calc book apps, anything, just know where you can access them, know how to access them quickly, and know where the pertinent information in them is. So I think cognitive aids are really important. Number two would be get the basics of the airway really nailed. Get good airway positioning. Practice on dummies, practice on your own children if they're tolerated, but just get good, know where to put your hands to do a good head tilt jaw list, open the airway in a child. Make sure you can get a good mask seal with the mask of the bag valve mask. Think about if you have to put a nasopharyngeal airway, where are you going to grab your tube? How are you going to cut it? How are you going to size it up? Think about applying that positive pressure of ventilation. Not too much, not too little. Avoid over distending the stomach. So I think just nail the basics well with airways. And I think the third point to say, it's almost another cognitive aid, is that you're not alone in this. None of us that work in pre-hospital, in-hospital, anaesthesia, critical care, emergency medicine for children do this on our own. We all do it as a part of your team. And if you find yourself to be the sole responder to that horrible incident, that just remember there are other people who, if they can come, will come. Or if they can't come, will provide you with decision-making support. They can do calculations for you. They can offload. And fourth, if I may, kids are just small adults when it comes to emergency resuscitation. <laughs> John, that's fantastic. And it's it's really reassuring for me who doesn't deal much with kids at all just to have kind of sensible, straightforward advice that I can use as an adjunct to my practice rather than having to relearn paediatrics as a completely separate subject. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. You're very welcome. I hope some of that was useful to your team and your colleagues. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I'm on NHSnet or Twitter. I'd be happy to provide any other information that I possibly can. Thanks very much. You're welcome.